chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Uh, You'll recall that last week as we were looking at the end of chapter 8, we mentioned how it's kind of a hinge passage where up to that point we had seen much of the power of Christ over all of creation, but with last week's text we kind of took a turn and headed in a different direction in Mark where we look now to the suffering of Christ and what he will have to endure. Today's passage is a passage where we see how he was strengthened and encouraged going into it. And I hope that our faith is strengthened and encouraged as well. If you are able, please rise out of respect for God's word as I read now Mark 9 verses 1 through 13. This is the inspired word of God. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified and A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and for practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord God, bless our time in your word today. Help us to see your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might recall last week as we we looked at our sermon text, the text that we had printed in the bulletin actually included verse 1 of today's text. We decided not to include that. I told you we'd get to it this week. Now we're going to. The reason it was originally a part of last week's text is because it was on the same occasion that Jesus said those things. It was on that occasion when he was teaching them that he mentioned to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until the kingdom of God has come with power. But today we see it as part of today's text, which takes place six days later. That time connector is given to us in verse 2 here. It says after six days because it's specifically linking the two together, I think. And and so we have to ask, when when Jesus says, until they see the kingdom of God, uh, after it has come with power, what exactly is he talking about? Different theories would be put forth, at least as to what the disciples thought, perhaps. Uh, They probably thought he was talking about his leading of a successful rebellion that would drive out the Romans so that they would be gone and that he would be enthroned as the king. They, of course, would be... Uh, as his chief lieutenants, given positions of power and honor and glory. Now, they, of course, were wrong because this was not what his plan was. Perhaps we understood 
what he means, what he meant here, just to be uh, when he comes in his second coming, right? When he comes in glory and power, and and he he comes and and uh, sets all things to rights. Uh, if that's what he's referring to, then then he is wrong, because of course that hasn't happened yet, and all of them have died. He says that they wouldn't taste death until this had happened. He could be talking about his resurrection, perhaps. It makes sense. There indeed were uh, those disciples who, who lived to see his resurrection, uh, all of them but Judas, right? And, and I think perhaps we're partially right, at least on the right track, if we start thinking along those lines. But I think the, the best way to look at it is what has been suggested by a commentator, R.T. France. He says it's a reference to Jesus' vindication in general, a vindication that certainly found its fulfillment in the resurrection, right, which proved that indeed Jesus was all that he claimed to be. But it found a more immediate fulfillment here in Mark 9. Right, this fulfillment that we see on this Mount of Transfiguration where the kingdom of God comes with power in four different ways that I want to highlight this morning. I want us to see that there is power in holiness, there is power in the word of God, there is power in love, and finally, power in Christ's substitution. First, power in holiness. Right After the six days had passed, Jesus, we see, uh, took Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain. We see here what, what Jesus referred to, how some would see this happen. Uh, we see this, Peter, James, and John are the ones that go with him, not the rest of the disciples. The other nine are left behind. He has called them out to go with him, a special group that he has called to follow him and to go with him. He has called them out. That's something that he does with us too. He calls us out. Uh, my family was driving down the road not too long ago and we saw a church that we drove by. It was called Ecclesia. And when we saw the sign out front, Jack asked me, he said, Dad, what, what, what does that mean, ecclesia? And I told him that the meaning of that is actually it's a Greek word. It's the Greek word that means church. And so the name of that church was church. You know, it's pretty simple. Uh, I like simplicity, so, so that, that's pretty nice. You know, we went to church. You know, which church? Well, church, you know. But um, but the word ekklesia actually comes from two other words. It's a compound word in Greek. The first word ek, which means out. We get our words like exit, comes from that. Uh, and the other one is the verb kaleo, uh, which means to call. And so we see that the original meaning of ekklesia, uh, the church, was the called out ones, right? It's an assembly or a, a, a group of people that have been called out to something. We indeed have been called out to be separate, to be different. And that's what part of what holiness is, to be called out, to be separate, to be different, to be other. We're called out of the world. It doesn't mean we leave the world, but we are called out of it to be a, a body, to be the body of Christ. We're called to worship, right? To gather here and at the beginning of our service each week, we have a, a scriptural call to worship, right? To remind us, to lead us into worship. There's a, a universal call that goes out to all people that they must believe in Christ Jesus, trust in him, depend on him, count on him for their salvation or else they will not be saved. And there's an effectual call which is, gone out to all of us who do trust in him, where God has called us to be his own. He has made us his own through his effectual call, through his spirit working in our hearts. And we are even called to be holy, even as God is holy. We fail, of course. Uh, we have been failing at this ever since Adam. And that's why we need Jesus. And and we strive to be holy, even now, only by the power of Christ who dwells within us. Right? Our, our mission as a church, we've, 
he says, is to, we exist to know, worship, serve, and enjoy the one triune God. That's, that's what we exist. And we, we have a vision that is kind of how we live that out, how that looks in everyday life. And it's that we seek to love God completely, love others selflessly, and to everywhere proclaim Christ, crucified, risen, and reigning forever. Right? But we, we live out this life, and, and all glory is to be his. He is the glorious king who reigns on high. And, and the disciples that went up with him, Peter, James, and John, got a, a glimpse of that on that day. They got a glimpse of that glory. He was transfigured before them, we read in verse 2. The Greek word there is metamorphethe, right? It's, it's literally the same word. Metamorphosis comes from it, right? It's the idea of like a caterpillar changes into a butterfly. Jesus changed into a new form as they were there looking at him. He was changed. It was still Jesus, but there was something radically different about his appearance. He, he, he was beheld by those three disciples there, and they saw something different than they had seen just moments ago. It's kind of a harbinger of the resurrection. You remember that many times Jesus appears to his disciples, and each time they're kind of like, wait, wait, who, wait, what? Are you? Yes, it's Jesus. They they don't recognize him at first. And, and then they eventually do recognize him. But, but there's something visibly different about him in his resurrection body. And so it is in his transfigured appearance here. There is a glory that envelops him and transfigures him and changes him so that he looks different than he had before. His clothes, Mark says, became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Mark's kind of grasping at ideas here, ways to say things, ways to, to describe the undescribable. As Luke talks about it, he says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. Matthew says he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. Right? The idea here, this, this white as light, this glory envelops him. And there is a holiness, a purity that exists there. Right? They didn't have uh, in their culture uh, Clorox, right? a bleach they could just throw on and make their clothes white. Right? Now, and, and the idea here is, is that he became more white than anybody could possibly bleach. Just this brightness the glory and holiness of God. And in much the same way, we, we, we are stained by our sin. We are not pure. We are not shining brightly. We are not undefiled. We're polluted by our sin. Isaiah 64 says it this way, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even our good deeds are sinful, it says. We we are left filthy because of our sin. But God, by his grace, changes us. He does a new work in us. By his power brings us holiness. In Isaiah 1, we read, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like clemson, they shall become like wool. This is only possible through the holiness of Christ as he gives us his holiness. Having died for our sins, there is power in Christ's holiness and that is what makes us holy. The second place we see power is in the word, the word of God. We see it in a couple ways. First, notice who's with Jesus up on the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Verse 4, there appeared with him Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Luke tells us that they were talking about his departure or his exodus, which was about to take place in Jerusalem. Right? Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. And the phrase, the law and the prophets, was just a, a, a shorthand way of saying 
uh, the Old Testament scriptures, right? The, the whole of the Bible that they had at the time. And so when we see Moses and Elijah there with them, they, they represent the Old Testament, which was the whole of the word of God at that point. You'll recall how on a later date in Luke 24, after Jesus has died and risen from the dead, he, he is on the road to Emmaus with two disciples who are walking along and, and they don't recognize him, who he is. And, and they, they're talking with him. He says, what's going on, guys? This is kind of my paraphrase. Um, and, and they say, well, we're really bumming pretty hard because, you know, we had this guy, Jesus, that we were, we were really tight with and we thought he was going to drive out the Romans and everything was going to be really cool. And, and, you know, but then they killed him. And, you know, now we're, we're, we're really down because of that. And he says to them, and this is a little bit more literal now, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and all that they had to say. The whole of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus and shows that he is the one who will come. He is the one who will redeem his people. He is the one who saves us. Jesus is the word of God. Right? And there's power in the word of God. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And the word of God, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross specifically, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so Peter is, is excited at this point. That Peter is kind of excitable. That's just the way he was. He says, says, says Rabbi, let, let, let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Uh, uh, you know, because he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified, verse 6 tells us. And we do that sometimes, don't we? We don't know what to say, and so we just start talking, right? And maybe we'll get there eventually. We'll figure out as we're going along, right? One of those long sense where you just kind of keep talking and talking and talking and you're trying to figure out where you're going with it. You don't know. And you kind of figure Peter did that a lot. That was kind of his, his way of doing things. He says, let's build a tent for you. But do you see what Peter is failing to realize? That Jesus already was the earthly tent that the Shekinah glory of God had taken up, resident, taken up residence in on earth. Right? In John 1, we read that the Word became flesh. It's talking about Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? It's just, it tabernacled among us. It, it pitched its tent. We could say it, it, it would be a very literal translation of it if we say the Word became flesh and tented among us, right? Jesus already was the tent that the Shekinah glory was living in in their midst, John goes on to say, we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. They, they were beholding the very glory of God in the person of the Word of God. And you could understand why they were frightened. Just imagine what's happening here in verse 7. It says that, that a cloud overshadowed them. Matthew says it was a, a bright cloud, right? Not, you know, not a dark cloud, but a bright cloud, a shining cloud. It's, it's, it's again, they're trying to grasp at words to kind of put a picture in our minds. This cloud reminds us of the Shekinah glory, right? This cloud that was in the Old Testament, right? You remember in Exodus 40, uh, God instructed Moses to construct that first tabernacle that would go with the people in the wilderness that God might have residence in their midst. And, and once Moses had finished all of the preparations and built the, ta the tabernacle as he had been told. We read in Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's glory was so, so dense Moses couldn't even go into the tent, into the tabernacle. So great is the glory of God. And that glory is being made manifest now on this hill, on this mountain, in the person of Christ Jesus, 
our Savior. He who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He who would later say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Right? And then this voice comes from the cloud. And remember, what what's follows here, what the voice says, is not just some decontextualized statement, right? What, what have we just read right before this, right, of Peter rebuking Jesus when, when Jesus said he had to suffer, but when Jesus said he would have to die. Peter rebuking him, saying, Jesus, no, there's a better way to do this. Let's, let's sidestep the cross. Let's sidestep the suffering. Let's find a different way to glory. But Jesus rebukes Peter, and now the voice of God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Right? He is reminding them that indeed the cross is the only way to salvation. The cross is the only plan that will work. There is no shortcut. There will be glory for sure. But the path of Jesus must go through the cross. And if we are to have glory, then our path must go through the cross as well. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves right before God. We cannot do enough good deeds to erase the stain of our sin. It is only through the cross where our penalty is paid, where our sin is washed clean with the blood of Christ, that we can be made right. He who is the word of God has the power to make us clean. There is power in the word. And there's power in love, right? The voice of God says what? This is my beloved son. It is because of his love of Christ Jesus. It's the same thing he said at his baptism, you remember? Before Jesus set out on ministry, God spoke and reminded him of his love to encourage him, to strengthen him, to empower him as he set out on ministry. And now, as he is headed toward the cross, once again, God is speaking to Jesus, reminding him of his love for him, that he might once more be empowered. It is a difficult road that leads to the cross. It is not an easy thing that he will endure. He needs strength. He needs power. And God's love provides that power for him because there is power in love. We know this, right? A, a good husband will, will sacrifice much for his beloved. A, a mother will do amazing things to sacrifice for her children. And, and, and this is all because of love that we have, right? We, we will... We will do things for people that we love that we wouldn't do things do for other people. We will sacrifice. We will, we will even be strengthened by that love to accomplish things that we could not otherwise accomplish. Because there is power in love. So they looked around in verse 8, and there's nobody else there. Jesus only. Matthew tells us they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And we, too, need to regain a fear of the Lord and have that fear calmed by the loving touch of Jesus. That is what we need Right? We, we become too casual with God sometimes. I, I think we're just like, ah, you know, the holiness of God really isn't a big deal to us. It should be. The holiness of God is a mighty thing, and we fall way short of the glory of God. We need to regain a fear of God. But our fears can be stilled. They can be calmed. They can be removed by the loving touch of Jesus. A couple weeks ago, we sang, Jesus loves me, this I know, right? We need to know that. I hope you know that today. Jesus loves us, and we love because he first loved us. That's right. Our, our love for him and for others flows out of his love for us, right? So that, that our obedience is, is a response to his love. That we, we are constrained to obedience by the love that he has shown us. 
His faithfulness will enable us to be faithful because it is his spirit that dwells within us by faith. And so they're, they're coming down the mountain and he charged them not to tell anybody what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. He said other times that people shouldn't tell people about what they've seen, what's happened, but now he gives kind of an expiration date on it. He says, you know, you can tell people about this later once the Son of Man rises from the dead. And so they kept it to themselves. They were obedient to his command. Uh, we, of course, have a different command because the Son of God has risen from the dead. And so we proclaim that everywhere. As I said before, we, we proclaim Christ crucified, risen, and reigning forever. But they kept it to themselves. Now I want to look at one more thing. Power in Christ's substitution. Specifically in his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. They kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Right? They didn't understand what he was talking about. And that's why he didn't want them sharing about this. And so they ask him in verse 11, why do the scribes say that First, Elijah must come. They're referring to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where the prophet says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt, right? There's all kinds of places. We don't have time to go into all of them, but Psalm 22, which actually, just kind of a, a shameless plug here, uh, is going to be the topic that Chris Holmberg's going to be looking at in Sunday school after worship today. Uh, it'd be a great opportunity for you to join Sunday school after grabbing a cup of coffee and a donut. Um, Psalm 22 is one of the places where we look and see the suffering of God, our, our suffering of Christ. Uh, Psalm 69 is another one. Isaiah 53, of course. All these places talk about how this, this Messiah would suffer. And verse 13 says, I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Right? Matthew says it this way to give us a little bit more context, a little more commentary on this says, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Right? When he's talking about Elijah who has come and they did with him as they pleased, he was talking about John the Baptist who would come as this Elijah figure. And we've talked about that with, Eli with John the Baptist in the past, how he fulfilled this role as the, the Elijah to come. But, but Matthew tells us here that the same way the Son of Man will suffer at the hands of people. Right? And that's the good news for us. He will suffer and he will die to pay for our sins, but he will rise again. And so they are reminded and we are reminded here that even when things seem terrible, when it seems they're spinning out of control, that all things are still happening in God's control. He holds the whole world in the palms of his hands. His plans are working out and even when we don't understand them, even when we can't fathom what good is coming from them, we can know that he is in control working things out for his good by the power of God. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1, 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my speech, my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of of God. 2 Corinthians 13, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. And living now, the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of the power of God, and from there he ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. Charles Wesley wrote in one hymn, Five Bleeding Wounds he bears received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayer.
prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let the ransomed sinner die. And we will sing in just a few moments. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Right? Jesus pleads for us, even through his broken body, and his poured out blood. And that's what this table proclaims. We partake through faith and we participate in Christ and all his blessings. He unites himself to us in such a way that all that is his becomes ours and all that is ours becomes his. And it points us to the cross. The cross where we, he received wounds that now guarantee our salvation before God. Where, the, where we, we become, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Where, where his body was broken and his blood poured out to cleanse us of our sin. That we might be made whole and where we might experience the very power of God. We come to this table today not because it's my table or Calvary's table or even a Presbyterian table, but because it's Christ's table and he bids us to come to it that he might reveal his power to us. He actually works his power in us and through us at this table as we partake in faith. If you do trust in Jesus. He invites you to this table. If, if you do not, then I urge you to, to instead of partaking, just take this time to, to pray that God might reveal his saving power to you. But for those who, who do believe, who do trust in Jesus, we want to come and, and before we do, we proclaim our common faith, acknowledging it uh, in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism printed in our bulletins. So if you will open there, I ask you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink 
this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we, we thank you that you have given us this wonderful sign of your salvation and of your power and of your glory. We thank you that we can partake now and even partake of you. Bless us. Give us faith to trust in you. Help us to know that we come not on any worthiness of our own, but rather only by the worthiness that you give us. Sinners forgiven, trusting in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If the servers would come forward.
Christ Jesus is with us always. In a special way, he is with us even more mysteriously and profoundly as we partake through faith. And to all who trust in him, he says, take, eat, this is my body. Our faith strengthened by the power of God, which is present in the word of God, in his love and, and in the holiness that he gives to us. And even through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which 
reminds us of his substitution for us, let us now sing to the glory of God. Hymn 277, Before the Throne of God Above. Would you please rise? soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me I hope you know that same truth for yourself this morning and as you go forth receive this benediction may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.